Today, we talk to Joe Regan, recovery detective who left his corporate job for the complementary worlds of private investigator and assisting those suffering from chemical dependency. In the first half of the show, Joe recounts stories of tracking a man who vacated his life in New York City to vanish into the deserts of New Mexico. How a laptop snatched from a car in San Francisco involved a secret contact known as Tom the Birdman. And finally, how Joe worked on behalf of a family to locate a nurse who had become addicted to opiates, lost her job, and faded into the shadowy maze of San Francisco's Tenderloin District. In the second half of the show, we examine Joe's work uncovering fraud within the oft-lucrative field of the chemical dependency rehabilitation industry. We examine such terms as diagnosis flipping and gold-plated insurance, also body brokering, where those suffering from addiction are literally paid to relapse on their drug of choice. My name is Benjamin Russick, licensed marriage and family therapist, and this is my podcast, Look, Just Tell Me What to Do. Joe, what the heck is a recovery detective and why should anyone care? Thanks, Ben. Uh, it's good to be here with you today. You ask, what is the recovery detective or why do I call myself the recovery detective? I think in two words, I'm able to tell you who I am and what I do. I work in both the addiction treatment industry and I'm a licensed private investigator in the state of California. Oh, cool. To kind of parse those two words, the recovery piece, simply put, I just am moving someone from a place of sickness into wellness. Or as one of my friends and colleagues said, just more good, less bad. A lot of folks don't know what that means from sickness to wellness. Recovery, you're referring to the world of addiction, correct? I'm referring to the world of addiction, yeah. yes. Describe a, a day in the life of an interventionist. Like you show up, what, what happens? As an interventionist, it's some of the most taxing but rewarding work that I do. For me, it's usually a lengthy process. It starts about two weeks before we actually have any interaction with the identified loved one, the patient, however you want to label them. That's just getting all the eyewitness accounts from all the family members, sifting through that. So you can see where starting to winnow out all of the, the disparate information and kind of putting together some kind of cohesive story that will essentially become your, your sales pitch to the alcoholic or to the addict. I heard it once said that selling recovery to an alcoholic is one of the, the hardest sales positions in the world. And I agree with that, right? Because mm -hmm. it's a big ask of someone to, uh, to step away from, to give up their one and only coping mechanism. So that's where I got my, my feet wet in the recovery world was being a, a certified interventionist. There's different modalities, different schools of thought. I'm much more in line with uh, the invitational approach. It's kind of counterintuitive, but you know it's coming if you are the addicted loved one. When you say invitational approach, what does that mean? It's an invitation to change as opposed to other methods of coercion, which have their use and, and definitely hold weight. But I find that inviting someone to the change in their life means that they are able to on their own terms, kind of recapture their agency. Mm -hmm. And for me, that is what a huge piece of early recovery is about, is, is recapturing, mm -hmm. recovering personal agency to make decisions in the world. I remember there was a guy who his wife was on a binge mm -hmm. and she was holed up in a hotel drinking. And what he did was is he uh, canceled all of her credit cards, called all of her friends, called everybody, let them know what was going on, said, don't take any money, don't don't give her any money, don't help her. And he was sort of slowly cutting off all of her support system. Mm -hmm. And I would say that would be coercion. You have two leverages. You have love and money. So you can take away the love and you can take away the money as a way of coercing someone to go into treatment. And a lot of times I would see those types of folks up at, you know, I wish to work at Bayside. Well, they're the hardest patients because they would often fake it or they would just, I'm going to get through these this 30 days. I'm going to do these groups. I'm not really an alcoholic. I don't really have a problem. My family's making me be here. But your approach is you don't really use coercion. You don't use leverage. You invite people to go into treatment. That's right. And, and how do you do that? What All does right. that look like? What does that look like? Uh, I make the invitation. You know, I will. I'll pick up the telephone if they're reachable mm -hmm. and call and say, "My name's Joe. I'm a friend of so and so of the family." I try to steer away from using the word interventionist. Uh huh. Your family's kind of at at their wits' end with trying out to help you. We're having a family meeting. It's going to be about you. We want you to be there. Wow. And we hope you can join. Most of the time, how interventions work, my understanding is that the, it's like a surprise party. Like someone just shows up at a house to get something and all of a sudden every their family's there and there's a, mm -hmm. there's a car waiting outside of taking the treatment and it's like, it's like they're being ambushed. Shanghai ambushed. Yeah, yeah, but you do it. I've never heard of that. That's really cool. And what's your success rate with that? I have a pretty good success rate. I, sometimes it takes a little longer than, uh -huh. than other approaches. Uh -huh. I, I think all intervention is a coercive act at the end of- it Absolutely. Just depends on how much coercion you're using. The courts- are coercive. 
They are. The loss of uh, families, coercive. The loss of job, coercive. Backing over the rose bushes, not necessarily <laughs> so, but you can absolutely guide someone from that place of sickness to wellness. And for me, it's more about moving them from a place of pre-contemplation yeah. to contemplation. For those of you who don't know what that means, there's five stages of change, pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparation, action, and then maintenance, mm -hmm. long-term maintenance. And it takes quite a while to get somebody into the action stage. Even when they're in treatment, a lot of times we won't, when I'm writing up my treatment plans, I won't put patient as an action. It's usually pre-contemplation or contemplation. Right. But what I really like about your approach is that you are filtering for people who are going to be more successful in inpatient, correct? Correct. That's fantastic. And also they're not going to feel as resentful because they weren't ambushed. Yes. They're not, they're not locked in. And what do you say when they say no? What do you do? I just, I listen for the yes. Yes comes in many forms. Mm -hmm. It might sound like a resignation. There's usually not much joyous yes. And a part of this is having done your homework. Yeah. Like I said, it's, it's almost a two week process for me. What I find to be most effective, I look for, I anticipate rather, what will be their, uh, they're called battleground beliefs, right? What are those things? What are those roadblocks, those mm -hmm. impediments to recovery, to, mm -hmm. to saying yes, to accepting help that are most likely to be thrown up? Self-defeating language, I can't do this, I'm not mm -hmm. worth it, blame, mm -hmm. you don't know what I'm going through. Anticipating those things and having an answer for that. Can you think of a memorable intervention? In May of... 2016, I was tasked to go out to Taos, New Mexico uh -huh. to, uh, to locate someone. This is kind of the convergence of recovery detective and, and intervention. This individual had fled New York City after 10 or 12 years of being a rather successful playwright, screenwriter, become totally disillusioned. It was around the time of Occupy Wall Street, and they became really disillusioned with what was going on. They packed their bag and they left, and they said, I'm giving it all up, and I'm going to move to like a yurt. Uh, in New Mexico, across oh. the Rio Grande, this place called uh, the Mesa, uh, and the Mesa is is an outlaw land. Mm -hmm. Right, the police won't govern it. Uh, you live by a certain code of ethics and morals that are unique to that place, and it's tribal. And if you step out of line, then the community handles it. This person's family was really, really concerned for them. They were worried about their the state of their mental health. So I was tasked to go out and, and locate them. I found them uh, dumpster diving at an organic produce market in Taos, New Mexico. It was a very strange introduction. So they were they went to live in a yurt to I'm presuming to drink. No, actually, um, oh. to farm to collect rainwater to be off the grid okay. without electricity, to give up modern society, to become a Luddite. And there was something, some concern from this person's family that they were off their rocker. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't necessarily a substance abuse thing. It was just like a, what's going on with our so-and-so. Right. I mean, living in a yurt, even though it's a little weird, is not necessarily terrible. I mean, I mean, I can understand living in New York City and wanting to get off the grid and just right. kind of being out in the middle of nowhere. It kind of makes sense to me. If he's dumpster diving, maybe not so much. Yeah, it was the dumpster diving. Uh, it was the collection of urine, gallon containers. So essentially was, what he was trying to do was create earth because the soil in New Mexico, northern New Mexico, is it's arid, it's dry, it's alkaline. It's not compost. So what he was doing when he was in that dumpster was he was getting as much organic material as he could to then bring back to the mesa in time make make soil oh it's like that movie with uh, about mars what's what's his name the martian the martian where yeah. he makes he uses the feces from his yeah compadres to make uh, right so but he's doing this in new mexico and stuff mm -hmm. okay at that point it was about you know taking him back there and then slowly making that offer to change their motivations for living out there ultimately he he, ref he refused our help but the family had a much better picture of the of his motivations for going out there uh -huh. since he had he had really just kind of disappeared himself. I still count on that as a uh, as a success for the family. That's awesome. How did you find him? Uh, I found him from a a receipt that was on a on a credit card that uh, had been linked to the family. He had purchased something in in town, uh -huh. and it was from that organic market. And you just kind of looked around the market. Yeah, there's a few ways in in the surveillance world to to find someone to accomplish something. You can either drive around with your head on a swivel for hours and hours and hours and hours, or you can sit still in one place and watch something, a door, a trash can, a dumpster for hours and hours and hours and hours. People are creatures of habit and they will reappear. And you just chilled out in front of that store until he showed up. Yeah. So thinking about the the genesis of the recovery detective, the the first case where I saw, wow, there's, there's a Venn diagram here and I seem to be in the middle of these two worlds. Uh-huh. 
Like I said, I had started off as an interventionist. I was working a corporate job that was kind of dead end. I thought I had achieved something that I wanted, but then I got it and it just wasn't for me. But there was a gentleman there and he was a, he was a private investigator and he did the background investigations on people who were to become partners or executives. They wanted their due diligence done on this person. And it was more than just a simple background check, right? A criminal, a simple criminal history, or have they ever been arrested for DUI, bankruptcy? So they really wanted was a, a complete picture of this person. And, and this guy was hired from uh, as a third party to kind of come in and perform those. And I liked him. He was from uh, Rhode Island. I'm from Pennsylvania. And we kind of had this East Coast vibe thing going on. And I asked if I could do a ride along with him. I did that for any San Francisco listener out there. It was on Mission Street between 5th and 6th. Oh, the nice part. It was the nice part. It was the Wild <laughs> West. And what did you see? What did you do? There was a CEO that went to make a deposit on the Provident Loan. Uh -huh. there on, on Mission Street, and he put on his four ways. He went in to make the deposit, and he came back, and his car had been uh, not stolen, but the contents of the car had been thieved. And for a few reasons, he couldn't go to the San Francisco police with this, either because of their lack of interest, property crimes in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. Come on, right? right. 30,000 car break-ins a year. Yeah. Uh, they're not going to put their best people on it. No. In some sense, the detective was hired as, as private police, right, for investigative services. And so it was about tracking down the contents of that car, which were very, very important to this person. I can't say exactly what it all was, but understand that the police were not going to be helpful in that situation. Okay. It had everything. There was the, the development of a, I guess you would call him a confidential informant, and his name was Tom the Birdman. <laughs> and I was told that I would be able to find some of the contents, or at least I could get a lead on the uh, the items from Tom the Birdman. I was okay. told that I'd need to go to Civic Center, or at, rather in front of City Hall at two o'clock, and Tom the Birdman would be showing up. and. I said, well, how am I going to know who Tom the Birdman was? And He's got wings, right? Well, <laughs> this is what I came to learn. This is like some real street knowledge right here. It okay. was just, it was as plain as the nose on my face. And they just said, he's going to have a bird on his shoulder. And oh. he did. And he ended up, Tom the Birdman showed up with a gigantic, I don't know what it was. It must have been a, a parrot of some sort, a blue parrot on his shoulder. It turned out to be a bogus lead. But nonetheless, it was, it was still better than what I was doing. That's pretty sexy. That's some sexy stuff. The second little anecdote from that story is there was closed circuit television of the heist from the car. Okay. And so I went around to different businesses on the block asking if I could review the closed circuit television. Uh -huh. One of the proprietors was a dispensary and uh, he invited me inside the dispensary and then we walked downstairs and it wasn't the four foot high vaults of marijuana that caught my attention. It was like the ropes coming out of the wall, the chains, the the cage. Jesus. Hey, buddy, what's what's going on is we're walking back towards the servers for him to get the, the footage for him. And he said, you know what? I, I don't even see it anymore. I'm I'm totally sorry. This was kink.com's first filming location. Is that the armory? No, no, no. They moved to the armory. So it was just, again, it was just, just ticking all of these boxes. It was fun. I was developing contacts. I was talking to, you know, business you, owners. You were, just, in a, you were on Netflix. It was cool. You were Netflix. It was cool. I was hooked <laughs> and I wanted to do more. That's so, Did you ever find the stuff? We recovered some of this stuff. Yeah, are you allowed to tell me how you did that? Because that seems like my understanding is when something is pulled out of a car like that, it just mm -hmm. goes on a boat to China and it's gone. You're you're half right. Okay. If it's electronic, you have about six hours in San Francisco to recover it, if right. that. So make friends with the fences uh, uh -huh. at Civic Center. Right I see. There on Seventh, uh, it is. And tell us what a fence is, just so people. A fence is your middleman. A fence is the person in between uh, the uh, the person who's purloining the goods and the person who's eventually going. And to they sell. probably have a relationship with the police. I would imagine. Probably. Interesting. Yeah. Half right. If it's electronic, it goes mm. on the boat. If not, if it's electronic. It goes in a boat. What I was able to find from that closed circuit television was that it was a it was a crew of um, Filipino immigrants, and it was a crime of opportunity. I think reviewing the the closed circuit television footage, saw the person walk down the street, walk up. Right. Walk down, right? And uh, and eventually just break into the car. Once we were able to identify who that was, it was pretty easy to know that they were local and that they lived in the housing directly across the street. Okay. So again, crime of opportunity. Okay, so then you were able to find those people. Mm -hmm. How did you find those people? Did you uh, knock on doors? The, no, actually I asked the, uh, the parking garage attendant across the street if they had seen this person wearing this Carmelo Anthony jersey. Uh-huh. 
said, yeah, they live upstairs. You want knocked right? on his door? No, that's actually where I brought in the San Francisco police. So, and then use them as a coercion. If you shake enough trees and get people scared enough, uh -huh. then they'll usually give give up the goods. And after that, you just sort of went on to do your yeah, thing? Yeah, more work came in. I started generating some of my own business. That was the case that got me hooked, where I knew I wanted to be an investigator, a detective. Sure. It's not all that, I don't even know if you call that glamorous, but it's not all that gumshoe. Hey. So, Ink.com, man. That's pretty glamorous. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> a young a young girl from, from a fundamentalist family in Texas had uh, hooked up with a bad boy uh -huh. in Texas, uh -huh. and they, they ran off. They ran from... What's a bad boy? Well, she was from uh, a strict Christian upbringing, and, uh -huh. and he was not that, Ooh. you know. So he was a small-time thief drug dealer and this was her ticket out mm -hmm. of that place so they came to san francisco i think they came here because she had visited here with her family a few years prior not being from san francisco myself the allure of the bay is uh is pretty enticing so and that goes back over 100 years um you know people's image of california as this golden the yeah, golden. as this golden state right this girl had come with this bad boy and they ended up shacking up on right there columbus and broadway uh -huh. kind of like that epicenter right uh -huh. there and he got picked up he got sent down to our local jail 850 bryant and mm -hmm. he was uh, locked up in there and uh, she was without money or without resources she got preyed upon first night she was walking from columbus broadway right there down to um help me out here macy's Towards the financial district or way? Yeah, she was walking towards the financial district. Well, that whole area is pretty bad. I don't know if, if those of you listening have know the city that Columbus and Broadway, there's the, basically the strip strip clubs up on Broadway and then the Tenderloin, like Pill Hill is kind of to the south, I would say. Mm -hmm. Right. It, it, it's a pocket. It's contained primarily, but mm -hmm. uh, you know when you're when you're walking through the demarcation zone usually. Yeah, because you're, you, you're the needles start crunching underfoot and you're yeah. walking around um, human feces. Uh, this girl had been uh, propositioned between North Beach and Union Square. That's uh -huh. what I was thinking of. Uh -huh. Actually by a cabby who saw her at two o'clock in the morning and said little girl are you lost and uh, she said how old is she she was 22 oh right and so what happened was he introduced her to some party people it kind of became this the soft hand of pimping oh you like to party like come party with us like all you got to do is xyz yeah you'll have five hundred dollars in your pocket at all times you'll have the the latest and greatest technology at your fingertips you can smoke all the weed you want and do all the cocaine that you can ingest they just have to sleep with these people right oh yeah 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 this was this really was about recovery yeah it was about the recovery of a person of a young girl certainly right and we found her on uh, what was then Backpage. uh-huh and we set up a meet what is Backpage? Backpage is yellow pages for adult dates escorts yeah. pretty much okay. yeah and since shut down, what we were able to do was set up a meet with her uh -huh. and uh, do the intervention there. Okay. And so that really was about, in the strictest sense, literally recovering a person from a place of crisis mm -hmm. and moving them into a place of, I don't want to even call it wellness, and just remove all of all the danger. Was she addicted to anything at that point? Probably just on her way. She was well on her way, yeah. sure. So we were able to get her some help in Marin County. Oh, that's great. And, uh, and that's where I was able to first see that there's there's something to this. Because yeah. as an investigator, a lot, well, not a lot, but a piece of the work is missing persons. Some yeah. people specialize in missing persons. There's a big question mark in an investigator's life at that point when you find the person. Uh -huh. What do we do with them? I'm the interventionist. Right. I know what to do now. So this was kind of the, the marriage of those two things where it, it wasn't even a struggle. Right. You know, I had enough relationships and contacts in both worlds, in both right. fields, to make a decision. For those of you who don't know the world of recovery that well, uh, usually when people go on benders or like this unfortunate person, she mm -hmm. was sort of sucked into the world of, I guess, sex trafficking. Yeah, You go down quite a hole. You are cut off from the people that you know and love. You're put into a different community. You often don't go by your regular name. You don't have a lot of money. Someone else is in charge of you. You mm -hmm. have a, a really nefarious, horrible people around you. And so by nature, finding that person is difficult. And I'm really starting to see how really any inter interventionist in the world would have to hire a PI to get all their information. But you've got sure. both. Um, a side question, this sort of a soft 
pimping, what you call it? Like this, is that a common thing where they just kind of rope women into this role of? Yeah, they either they Romeo them, they entice them with partying with just enough cash uh-huh. to keep them. And where do they live? Back. Where do the women live? Lombard Street. They, so they put them up in a hotel room. Yeah, and just say, yeah they here. bounce around. And who are these people that that suck these women? In? Are they pimps? Are they who no, are they? They're, they're just regular men. Or yeah, they're they're regular men. Yeah, who just do this nefarious, diabolical. They have this habit of just sort of. I'm just gonna en- enlist five or six young women mm-hmm. to be hooked on drugs and do my bidding and kind of party with my friends and my and myself. Is, yes. it, is it is it is it an organized thing or is it kind of a loose sort of pathological? It's a loose pathological thing. I think. That is so strange because I heard about something else. Um, I'm interested in these kind of phenomenon that kind of arise sort of organically in a kind of a sick way out of the mm-hmm. culture. There is a, a pattern in Golden Gate Park of older men who get to know teenage boys mm-hmm. through marijuana and drugs. Right. And they, they become kind of like their disciples and they run they run drugs for them or they do favors for them. It's not like a sexual thing, but it's like they kind of mentor them. Okay. And they're usually homeless or quasi homeless, and it's all in Golden Gate Park. It's and it's loose, like you said. It's that's so odd right. that there's these. I'm kind of at a loss for words on how to how to articulate it's it. It's a true black market. Yeah, right? I guess you want so. to find the real value of something, right? That's that's it's on the black market. And what's really amazing about it is just that I mean, this is like so. This is like true sociopathic behavior. I don't think the people who even do this know that they're doing anything wrong. Right. Well, I mean, a 22 year old woman doesn't really have the foresight to say what I'm doing to myself now will damage me long term. Do you find that the people who are in charge of her know that they're doing something wrong? It cuts both ways. Mm-hmm. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. When they get caught, yeah. Yeah. Any more stories you'd like to hear? If you have more anecdotes you want to share, sure. that would be awesome. Um, stories are the world is made of stories. Right. One one other standout story was uh, I was a traveling nurse. Okay. Uh, and she was a uh, she was a pediatric nurse. So I want to say one of the New England states. Former Marine. Tough. When nurse, tough gal. A nurse Marine. Yeah. A nur- oh man, a I nurse Marine. Meet her at a dark alley. That uh, <laughs> would be the end of me. That'd be that'd be uh, Tulsi Gabbard, right? Wasn't she? She was a nurse, and uh, she was Army, not Marine. So this woman, tough as nails, traveling nurse, pediatric, got hooked up with a guy out here who was who was really just a junkie, and she got turned on to pills. Inside her six-month stint, she came up dirty. Well, her performance was deteriorating. They noticed Uh at work. Uh They drug tested her, and uh, and they released her. Bad went to worse. The habit exploded at that point, and she lost her housing. What job? What drug was she on? Was it Uh, initially? It's that story of start with pills, move to heroin. So oxy's. It made sense to her to close down her apartment, or Uh rather, just be evicted from it. Uh um, Stop paying rent. And move into Golden Gate Park in a tent. Jesus Christ. Can I just say for those listening, people move from oxys to heroin because in this day and age, heroin is actually significantly cheaper yeah. than pills. It's also injected. It has the relative strength, I suppose, of an oxy, mm-hmm. but it's cheaper. Is that correct? It's cheaper. So she just did that made sense. Move to a tent. Of course, right? Because then I can pay for my heroin and right. it's cheap. And my gosh, you know. Until the Department of, of Public Works in San Francisco came through. Is she still working at this point? No, no, no. She had she had lost her job. Okay. She still had insurance. Okay. Miraculously. And that was something that actually saved us in the end. Say what you will about the insurance industry. But hey, when had, it works, it works. She, she was insured. So DPW came through, cleared out her tent, all of her belongings. So she moved from right there at Haight and Stanyon, right uh-huh. in that little horseshoe right there. The east side, it would be the east side entrance of Golden Gate Park. Yeah, that's like, yeah, that's gross. Right there. And she just got on the number five bus and went right to the TL. And so that was her new home. TL. Was the Tenderloin. She was just living on the street at yeah. that point. Well, until she is, again, befriended by someone with the again saw again right 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 yeah i was able to find her actually through the owner of of an sro down on on fifth street what's an sro sro is a single resident occupancy it's pretty much what we call i'd be careful here i call it a flop house but it's really just temporary and short-term housing for people who don't have permanent housing in san francisco and so you always have to be careful when you're down there because you understand that some stories end on sixth and mission and for other people that's their daily life is that crunch of the needles. What do you mean the stories end? Well, someone's using history will end on the corner of 6th and Mission amidst all of the adult bookstores and the drug deals, the open air drug markets, you know, on the street, the the back alley XYZ. 
You mean they'll come to their senses and go, oh my God, this, yeah. is, this is the rock bottom. But for right. some people, it's like, oh wow, this is paradise. I've got all the drugs I need. Paradise where some people are just locked into it. Yeah. Right? You're in there. I mean, you see it enough, people on the street. You're in their living room. Right. It might be like a public sidewalk, but they're cleaning themselves. They're bathing. They're washing their... So you have to be just a little bit careful when doing interviews down there. But what happened was I was able to get a lead from the owner of one of those SROs that she had seen this woman in her, in her hotel. I was able to set up her surveillance outside and then follow her to St. Anthony's uh -huh. uh, soup kitchen down there on Jones, I think. Actually flew the family in from New England. Oh. Right. So the next day I was able to say with some confidence that this is this woman's pattern. Right. She goes to St. Anthony's to get lunch. It's free. Wow. It's a hot lunch. Right. Uh, and then she'll go back to, to this place. Family was on the next flight. It was her sister. It was uh -huh. her best friend. Wow. And we did the intervention there in the middle of St. Anthony's while she was getting her lunch. Did it work? It worked. What happened? Tell it. Describe it. At that point, it was, let's get her out of San Francisco, get her on a plane. Let's figure out what the insurance picture looks like. Can you actually describe the scene? They show up at a soup kitchen. She's there in line with a tray in her hand. Like, what did it look like? The actual moment. Where was she standing? Um, she was actually sitting. She was sitting. Where was she Probably sitting? Probably eating a tuna sandwich at a long uh, at a long row table with everyone else. I talked to the doorman and said, hey, I've got a family member that wants to make an introduction or reintroduce himself to a family member they haven't seen in a while. And here's another thing you have to understand about life in the Tenderloin is that there are a lot of people who wish that someone was looking for them. Yeah, yeah. So they are. if they have nothing to say to you, they won't say anything to you. Right. But more often than not, the person that you're going to get an answer from is someone who has been given up on. Yeah. Who no one has tried to find in over a decade. That is so sad. So they're more than happy to help you set this up. Because it's what they want. It's what they want, absolutely. So keep going. So she's eating her sandwich. And who do you send in? I send in the sister and the best friend. And and I say, treat it like, get the ticket, get in line, uh -huh. get your food, and just go ahead and sit next to her. I'll be in the wings waiting. You know, I'm not going right. to, we don't need a third party to kind of administer any of this. And so they sat down next to her and what happened? The tears started flowing. Oh. Yeah. This girl had been waiting. I mean, it was, we're talking about Marine here. Yeah. Right? First in, last out. She could not bring herself to, to let her family know how, how hard she was struggling. Oh. Did she look startled when she saw her sister sit next to her? The blood drained from her face, definitely. Wow. Yeah. And then she started crying, I'm assuming. Yeah. And they all started crying. And they all started crying. Yeah. How long did they stay in the place before they got up and left? I don't think they took any more bites of their sandwich. <laughs> I think they were out. I think we were out the door. Pretty quickly. Wow. Uh, there was a lot of anxiety after yeah. that moment. And how did you feel? You must have felt just incredible watching that. Happen. I feel when I when we get a success like that, it's pretty righteous work. And how I did you feel like, in that moment when you saw those those three sitting there? I just felt satisfied for that family. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's I'm of use. You know, yeah, that in was... in in my fullest sense and capacity. Got it. When I be able, when I'm able to set something up like that. That's awesome. Yeah. That's a really heartwarming. That's a good story, Joe. Yeah, cool. It really is. So let's talk about the other part of being a recovery detective, which is your investigation, uh, nefarious practices in high-end rehab. And I will speak to that for a minute. I've worked in a couple high-end rehabs. I worked at Altamira and Bayside. Altamira was under different ownership back in 2008. So it's not fair for me to compare any of it, but I do recall that the rent it's in Sausalito. The rent there, I believe, was a quarter million a month. It was this big hotel with a bunch of houses attached to it. So it was a quarter million a month. And so you can imagine the, the maximum occupancy of the place, I believe, was 48 or 50 at the time. It was pretty big. Mm -hmm. The average price, I think, was thirty dollars to $40,000 per month per resident. Now I think it's upwards of 70000 And so whenever we had an empty bed, terror would creep through the whole place. It's their for-profit institutions. There's a lot of pressure to fill those beds. Right. Because one bed is 40K. You can go from being in the black to being in the red in moments. Because not only are you spending money on the dirt, but you're also the food. We had like steak and lobster. We had, I mean, you have chefs there. You've got 24-hour nursing. You've got a psychiatrist who comes in a, two or three times a week who bills out at, you know, $2,500 an hour or whatever it is. Right. It's, a, it's a huge, huge, huge machine. And if it is not full, mm -hmm. it loses money with breathtaking speed. And everybody can lose their jobs and it can happen fast. And even when I worked at Bayside, which was a much, uh, it wasn't quite as expensive a place in terms of the land and the staffing. It was 
pretty tightly run. Fantastic rehab. When beds were empty, there was a lot of anxiety, and it started at the top, and it would kind of trickle all the way down to the the staff on the ground floor. And there was just a sense of urgency, and like, where, why aren't we? We're not doing a good enough job. We need to get more people in here. And it's not like an intensive outpatient treatment center, which is basically you're selling seats instead of chairs. And there's infinite amount of room for seats, and you're not actually losing that much money. And but a bed is a big deal. That means that there is an incredible amount of money insanity and a lot of crookedness. So you can have a crooked person come in there and they'll admit people that, for instance, really shouldn't be there that have like really severe liver damage. They need to be at the hospital, but they want the money. So they say, okay, we can take that person. And you see a lot of really bad calls. I never saw a bad call at Bayside. And I don't remember if there was one at Ultimere, but I've heard about them. Mm -hmm. And I can see why they would happen because everybody's worried about losing their jobs. So that's my little spiel about the pressures that are, that are ha happening at these rehabs all over the country. And now Joe's going to tell us about what I'm assuming are some of the nefarious practices that, that come out of those pressures. The only point that I would challenge is that it's not resigned to just exclusive treatment centers. As a matter of fact, I would say there's some safeguards in those larger organizations that there's not in the smaller IOPs, oh, really? PHPs, oh. detoxes. So I'm specifically talking about uh, about fraud in mm -hmm. the addiction treatment industry. Mm -hmm. And this is this was really the full realization of the recovery detectives when it moved more when it moved out of strict recovery work uh -huh. into detective work, into uncovering, identifying fraud, fraud. inside the addiction treatment industry. For those of you who don't know what IOP and PHP is, IOP is intensive outpatient, PHP is parcel hospitalization. A detox center is much like it sounds. IOP means that you don't actually live there. It means you go to this center and you do group therapy for three days a week. It's about three hours a day and then you have a therapist and like a case manager who works with you and you get urinary analysis tests and then you kind of leave at the end of the day. You don't stay there. And then PHP is like IOP, but more intensive. It's, um, I believe, six hours a day, not three. It's like a school. What we'll see later on is there's this fungibility between IOP and PHP mm -hmm. where because of insurance compensation, mm -hmm. people will will code differently, will obfuscate things mm -hmm. to get just more money. And we'll see that like the entire drive, the vehicle for this whole fraud is the insurance policy. Okay, well take it away, Joe. Okay, uh, I was asked to intervene on a young man in, in Pacifica, just south of here. Uh -huh. uh, he's 24 years old. Uh, he had a history of, of addiction. I think he started his, his first treatment when he was 16 or 17 years old. He had put some, some time together and he, achieved some really great things in a short amount of time. He moved up here. He was a, um, he was working class, mm -hmm. but he was entrusted with the company he was at with a company car and with good benefits and a salaried position. And I think probably at that point is when he let his foot off the gas and eventually just found his way back into active addiction. He was a rather difficult person to intervene on, but eventually we got the yes from him. We got him. We got the yes. We closed down his uh, his apartment in Pacifica, which, by the way, he had turned an entire. It was a it was a two bedroom apartment, and the second bedroom was was a grow house. <laughs> <laughs> and trying to disassemble. I've been wondering what to do with my extra a bedroom. grow house. <laughs> it was an all it was an all day event, and we're talking. There was serious equipment in there. Like he yeah. really, really. You, when was this? This was in October of 2017. Okay, so before it was legal. Yeah. I intervened in, in October of 17. I'd say in about six months, I checked back in with the family and I learned that Kenny, we'll call him, Kenny was doing great while he was in treatment down in, in Orange County, California. And then he was approached while he was, get this, while he was at an outside meeting, he was, and he was approached by essentially like some, like a poacher and they offered him a thousand dollars to relapse, thousand dollars cash to relapse. What? Yes. To, to, so, so that he could go, po 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 what poacher? Say more. Oh, a poacher, a broker, a marketer from a rehab. From a from a rehab. And how did that person find him? They'll I don't know. They'll listen intently at a meeting, or they'll be in the smoke circle outside. Someone their same age, usually someone that has been brokered themselves. And so that's where I first under or I first heard the term body brokering. Oh. And that really blew my hair back. It almost didn't make sense at first. It's as insidious as it sounds. Really what it is, it's it's trading a client referral for money, right? Wow. So it's a financial kickback from providers, the treatment center, 
to reference right. the patient again. So the, how it works for those who are confused, I'm not saying you're confusing, it's a confusing process. It is. You have to be pretty effed up to get the insurance working. So if I'm I'm a case manager and someone calls me and says, okay, I wanna go into treatment, I've been sober for two weeks, but I'm just worried that I'm gonna relapse. Insurance will never pay for it. But the person says, I've been drinking all weekend, I just got a DUI and I'm still drunk right now and I feel like my life is in danger, then insurance is like, great, we'll pay for them. Mm-hmm. But if the person has had a few days of sobriety, insurance is like, well, they're fine, they just need meetings, you right. know, don't worry about it. So the incentive is, is the person has to come in all messed up on drugs or come out of a detox center or come out of a rehab or mm-hmm. come out of jail or something like that for insurance to approve something. So that's right. where the incentive to say, hey, go take a bunch of drugs and come back to us when you're messed up. It doesn't always have to be monetary compensation. It can be an airplane ticket. Really? It could be, sure. It could be a Visa gift card. It could be, hey, come on out from North Carolina, but you need to come to my IOP. If you come to my IOP, you can stay in my friend's sober living and you won't have to pay rent, but you need to come to this IOP. If you relapse. Well, as long as, here's the perverse incentive that's set up in the the whole scheme is the worst thing can happen while the fraud is going on Uh is someone gets better. Is if someone gets better, then the money dries up. Right. There's no more. Uh, there's no more billing to go on. So you create these artificial markets, and they they were huge in Florida, and now they're they're dwindling. But there's still there's still a preponderance of them in Orange and Los Angeles counties. What I saw with Kenny was that a thousand dollars is pretty great when your sobriety is tenuous to begin with. You're uh-huh. maybe less than a month clean, right? So I mean, what's at stake? A thousand dollars can get me pretty effed up. Sometimes they'll even pay for the hotel for you to go do it and go party and come back to me on Monday right. so we can get that insurance rolling. Most of it happens in Southern California, in uh-huh. Orange, in Los Angeles County, so much so that even the uh, the Orange County District Attorney's Office created what's called a SLIP team, Sober Living Investigative Program. Whoa. There are there were deaths, you know, like I said, it's just the trading stockade for cash for clients. Wow. Uh, and it's all funded through the insurance policy. And so I kind of see the origins of it coming from the adoption of the Affordable Care Act. With the inception of the Affordable Care Act, uh-huh. you, you could not discriminate a pre-consi- uh, pre-existing condition. You know, right. Mental health and substance abuse were now rolled into, into your insurance. And so you couldn't deny someone because of those things. And what happened was all of a sudden, all of these, there was access to care that had never been there before. And then you couple that with an opioid epidemic and you have almost a perfect storm of the potential for fraud. So basically there were a lot more reasons for someone when someone wanted, if someone wanted to poach somebody to get insurance, because insurance has to pay. Well, in, in my, in my world, we call it pay and chase. What happens is now that you cannot be denied because of a pre-existing condition, which mental health and substance abuse are considered. Right. They're going to pay out the claim, right? And they're going then they're going to chase down the veracity of the claim. But because of volume, I see Cigna, Aetna, Blue Cross, Blue Shield, right. all of them are just overwhelmed. Think of how many claims one patient submits in just an inpatient, sure, in in thirty days, right. maybe twice a week, right? Now, what's your census? Thirty people, sure, right? So they're just they're swamped. Right. And they can't chase them all down. Yeah, that happens to us, actually. I work at foundations Mm -hmm. um, downtown, and a patient will come in, and then they'll treatment will be completed, and six months later, we'll get a request for paperwork from the insurance Mm -hmm. to make, to validate the thing. And if it doesn't match up, they won't pay us, you know, because we get these things called no... It's called a no uh, authorization required case. And those are the scary ones because it sounds like, oh, he can come as much as he wants or she wants, but no, it means we're going to check this out later. So basically you're in a situation where there's a lot more fruit to pick. There's legislation now waiting to be signed by the governor, three bills I'm thinking of in particular uh-huh. that hope to narrow the ability and scope of body brokering. But mm-hmm. in the course of my investigation, I have found body brokering to be probably the most egregious and the most newsworthy, uh-huh. but there are many other frauds and many other schemes going on um, in tandem with body brokering. Genetic testing. And let me let me say that a lot of these have great applications. Sure. Genetic testing, I don't think we're there yet. Right. But in time, yeah, maybe. Genetic testing for what? For addiction? For addiction. And or so how is that a fraud? How is that used as fraud? Well, it's uh, I guess it would be 
inserted as a as a medical procedure. Oh, I see. And like I said, so some of these, like the use of them, are good. But it's just another way that a provider can bill insurance. I see. For money, like you're, I've heard that urinary analyses sometimes they'll charge like twelve hundred dollars a sure a thing or something like yeah, that. Yeah, having gone through hundreds, if not thousands, of explanations of benefits of people and right. seeing seeing claims of sixteen hundred dollars twice a week for confirmatory tests, not even actual screens. What's a confirmatory test? Yes, uh, yes, no. You know, positive, negative. So they're not really, they're not getting into levels. Levels. Levels right? of how much THC is in their exactly. blood or how much this. It's right. not very thorough. It's just sort of, right. and then even send it to the lab and they, yeah. What else have I seen? Cortisone injections. What that has to do with addiction treatment, I'm not really sure. Pain, maybe. But here it is. Cortisone injections are ongoing. Right. So it's a, it's a, it's a series of multiple injections. And so again, that just prolongs the billing. Okay. May, you may have seen or, or heard of this yourself, uh, diagnosis flipping. No. So someone same, so same patient, new diagnosis, substance abuse, mental health. Depending on where they are in their treatment history, uh-huh. they may have used up all of the funds for substance abuse, uh-huh. and so they'll go to a new provider, and the provider will Ooh. say it's mental health, and the funds then become available for that. Oh, so it's switching from mental health. Uh, Secondary to mental health, yeah. primary. Yeah. So instead of being treated for heroin addiction, they're being treated for depression. Exactly. Unbundling. So inside uh, an explanation of benefits, there's something called a CPU code. I think it's it is. Mm-hmm. And really, what it is is that's the ser- the service rendered. And what they do is, you know, how we were told like from like Xfinity or Comcast, like bund or or Geico, like bundle your home, auto, and life insurance all into one. Sure. And so what unbundling is, it's just the opposite of that. It's it's disaggregating all of these services right. into individual services rendered and then charging them. More for those Right, things. one, 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 instead of, there is a code that exists for several services. Okay. Right? That would be cost saving. It's cost saving only to the insurer. When I started working in foundations, we were getting upwards of $800 to $1,000 a day for patients. And now it's down to like two to $300 a day. Yes. And I would assume it's because of stuff like this. It's stuff like this. Yeah. Well, I think what they're trying to do is lengthen their revenue cycle. And so what happens is, is that then it hurts treatment ultimately because IOPs can't afford to stay in business mm-hmm. because they're not getting recouped. They're not getting enough money. Right. And the whole thing starts to collapse. The whole yeah. system starts to creak and, and fall down. Jesus Christ. Okay. So I've, I've identified in the past year uh, the red flags of, of fraud in the addiction treatment industry. And what I've come up with is what I like to call a screening tool okay. for people on my side of the equation, on the detective side, on the investigation side, on the prosecution side. Uh-huh. So a tool to screen for fraud or nefarious activities, like you were saying, for investigators, SIU, which is special investigations units for for the insurers themselves and for civil litigators. Because we also have to start thinking of the injured party as the insurer themselves. Frankly, I don't really see that as, as such a bad thing either because your premiums are going up because of these frauds. Sure. It's it's definite. So it's also about like kind of changing your thinking. Yes, there's a human face to this and there are victims, but the victim is also the insurance company. I know a lot of people don't like hearing that, yeah. but it's true. Do the insurance companies hire? Who hires you to do all this stuff? Because you had a lot of juicy stories about being the interventionist. Are there any stories around this stuff that you've mm. kind of done? You know, really what it's about is is kind of making this public-private partnership between law enforcement and investigators on in the private sector uh-huh. kind of coming together to just solve a problem. Have you done jobs around this sort of work? And, and what yeah. do those jobs look like? What do you do? Is it sexy as the other stuff or is it just sort of more paperwork? No, you know what? It's it's research. First, it's it's talking to the victim. It's asking them if they want to share their EOBs, their explanations of benefits with me. And like I said, that would be about, the person who was poached. Yes. Okay. Yes. And then identifying the fraudulent providers. Okay. A lot of spreadsheet work. Right. right? A lot of just going through the when, the where, all the interrogatives. And what happens at the end of that whole thing? Does somebody get sued? Yes. Okay, the program gets sued and the victim gets compensated and I'm assuming the insurance company gets compensated. Correct. Do you have any stories around this that stand out to you? Something that was like someone who was poached in a particular heinous fashion? There's a family I've been working with recently from Silicon Valley and uh-huh. their daughter, and she's 18 years old, 
she had a kind of a troubled history, and she first got brokered about two years ago now. Inside of one calendar year, this is all after the fact, but I was able to follow her story through the fraud. So to move from one IOP in Costa Mesa to another inpatient in Fountain Valley, to then move to a detox in Reseda, all smaller scale, so not Bayside, not Altamira tier, but smaller scale providers who really just saw the dollar signs around this around this girl because she had gold-plated insurance oh right so the insurance that because she wasn't 26 years old she was still on her parents plan and the parents plan was self-funded etna was just the claims administrator they weren't losing their shirt it was the employer of the father who was self-insured so they were paying out all of the claims was the company itself oh god so when a fraudster sees that is this is just an untapped reservoir where I, I can I can just keep going back to this well. Because the employer is not going to have the savvy of the insurance company. They're right. just going to keep paying and like, exactly. well, I want to take care of my employees. Why yeah. would I not provide this? Mm-hmm. So that so gold plated is like they can tell when like insurance is going to pay big sure. and they have a nose for it. Yep. Oh, there's an absolute hierarchy inside the insurance game in, in the broker world. I mean, I have text messages from providers down south between... I'm doing air quotes here. Their marketer and the treatment provider of, uh-huh. you know, you know that Cigna, that's like, that's a great policy, but like, don't bring me any more Anthem because that's all dried up. So they're, they're parasites. They go around mm-hmm. finding the juiciest clients with the juiciest insurance and they suck them up as much as they can. Is this ongoing? I think we reached the crest of the atrocity, at least in the brokering world. So what changes are you seeing? People are pissed. It's, and it's reached a... Um, you know, a crescendo with enough, you get enough angry mothers to kind of come together and have a place to voice their grievances. Uh-huh. And these are legitimate grievances. These yeah. are dead sons. Yeah. These are dead daughters. Dead because they were encouraged to relapse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And you see quite a bit of that? Sure. That's yeah. sad. One of the bills waiting to get signed has a piece in it about inducements, about compensation, about that referral, that brokering piece. So right. moving forward, if you're going to offer someone a plane ticket to come to California to get clean, you also need to offer them a plane ticket to leave. Because what happened was they would entice someone from the East or from the Midwest to come to California and come into treatment. And then they would use up all their insurance dollars and kick them to the curb. So they kind of created this artificial market down South where you had it an influx of 20-somethings in Orange and Los Angeles counties now adding to the homeless populations of both counties because their insurance dollars were no good anymore right. and with no way home, Ooh. right? So yeah, that's that's like the California dream in reverse. What do you think needs to change? I would say that California needs to narrow the definition of treatment. Right now, California doesn't define treatment. So Ben and Joe right. could open a treatment center tomorrow. And we could say, if you pat your head and rub your tummy three hours a day, uh-huh. hop on one leg, spin around in a circle, that will get you sober. And right. then we do an, we jump through one or two more hoops and all of a sudden we're able to bill for that. Right. I can bill insurance because I'm showing that my treatment is working for people. We also need to narrow, I don't think some people are going to like what I'm about to say, but we need to we need to limit the labor pool of people inside the addiction treatment industry. I think there needs to be more regulation with what people call themselves, how they hold themselves out, where they hang their shingle, how they do that. Such as? Interventionists. There's there's certain certification that a lot of people forego. Um, there's also a lot of self-certification that people can opt in, like IOP. I think one of the bills that I'm talking about is right now to have an IOP you don't need to have state certification to be an IOP. It's a self-certification process as it is right now. Mm-hmm. If Newsom is to sign this new bill, it would then mandate that there be more regulation, more certification, an advisory board. I'm for credentialing, even though uh, in other areas I hate the credentialed class. I would say when we're talking about addiction treatment and people's lives, you should, at minimum, you should be carrying some form of indemnification or insurance practicing what you do if you're not mm-hmm. then i'm not really going to think you're a legit you're holding yourself out to be a legitimate business person and like i said but we are seeing progress here in california that's ab 919 and that's um the payment for housing not being dependent on insurance benefits what is ab 919 oh that's assembly bill oh 919 that's up for this actually it's it's been passed in both Okay. Both houses in Sacramento, just waiting for the governor to sign off. Okay. Um, another assembly bill is 920, 
That's the voluntary certification. So that's ending voluntary certification. What does that for mean? outpatient programs? What does that mean? So it would require state licensing to open an IOP. I see. As opposed to just we can just we're an IOP. Hi. We're an IOP. We're over here. Yeah. Fascinating. Okay. Um, and then Senate Bill five eighty nine, uh, and that's just truth in advertising. Okay. You know that ubiquitous shot of someone sitting. Yeah. <laughs> in front of the ocean. <laughs> yeah, I'm fine. Right. It's like no. Yeah, but. <laughs> But what that what that's saying is you're coming to Newport Beach to get this this first class treatment when yeah. really you're stuck in a garage <laughs> in Fountain Valley. Yeah. You know, not not the same thing, not yeah. the same thing. So I would like to see sanctions with with teeth because I've also seen that there's high turnover in the industry, whether uh -huh. it's it's the business owner or it's the people working for that person. There's just high turnover. Sure. And so sanctions with something akin to a disclosure act. Have you been named in a lawsuit? Have you filed for bankruptcy? And then a change in the definition of addiction treatment. Uh -huh. We need to be much more narrow in how we define this stuff. This doesn't happen in other states that are hubs for recovery. This doesn't happen in Minnesota. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Minnesota is a big place for treatment and recovery. One thing that I would love to see change is, with all due respect to promises, the the way there's this it's a rehab the way that there's this idea that you're going to come in and we're going to fix you the, the the inpatient is just the beginning it's the begin it's the stabilization you right. know and this notion that anybody in the world who is sticking needles in their arms who has been taking Xanax Xanax I don't if you ever watched someone detox from Xanax it takes 6 weeks and they feel like termites are crawling all over their body you really think that person who has not learned has forgotten how to manage anxiety is going to be okay after 30 days of inpatient treatment. Right. There was a guy at a treatment center who was, you know, he was the he was the leader. There's always a leader of the community. The treatment center is the guy, the guy or woman who's like, "I'm going to do this all right." And the whole time he was planning how he was going to drink once he got out of treatment, like which hotel, where, which sure. all these things. And he had it all figured out. Of course, he relapsed and it all fell apart. Um because there's this there's just this notion that 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 we're going to send our family member off they're going to be fixed and everything's going to be fine is insane mm. and the verbiage around treatment needs to change they should call these places beginnings or something like that right you know <laughs> something something else you know because it's not it's not like a hospital where you go in and get your leg fixed yeah it's totally you're you're you're, you're putting somebody's soul to bed Mm. which takes years. And what I tell uh, my patients, like, look, you're here in IOP because the inpatient started you off, you stabilized enough, and now you have to figure out what your work is with a capital W. What do you need to work on as a human being? Right. Why were you using in the first place? One patient might be, let's say, she uh, uses Xanax to calm herself down in social situations. Mm -hmm. Well, what's that about? What are the, do you have? Do you have PTSD? Do you have some sort of uh, social anxiety? You need to work on that, and that's going to take years with a therapist and with you know regular meetings and maybe group therapy, whatever it is you need to do to work on that underlying thing and figure right. out what your work with a capital W is. Otherwise, you will relapse. And these processes are—they're not one month, they're not six months, they're not two years, they're ten, they're twenty years. It's no joke. Right. And this is so ridiculous. You know, I think, <laughs> honestly, you know, the Salvation Army, they sure. treat people for nothing and they're highly religious. Yes. I think that's the best one. You know, it's like you want something to get, you go to the Salvation Army, you really, f you see the other side of the Harbor world. Harbor Lights down there in, uh, in Soma. Is yeah. that what it's called? Harbor yeah, Lights? Harbor Lights here in San Francisco. It's called. I got a lot of respect for those kind of programs because, you know, a, a wise man said, I think it was Augustine Burroughs, he wrote in his book, this is how in the, each each chapter is an essay. One is how to get sober. He says nobody gets sober until they want sobriety more than their drug of choice. Right. But it takes such a deep sea change of the soul to want sobriety more than your drug of choice. Profound displacement. Profound, right? Yes. And I think you might discover that at a place like Harbor Lights, mm -hmm. but not at a cushy. With all due respect to the fabulous staff and treatment centers around the Bay Area and in Los Angeles, I just don't think you're, you're going to find sobriety in the lap of luxury. I just don't think you are. I mean, maybe you will. Yeah, I won't push back on that. <laughs> but it's kind of like, you know, oh, if I relapse, I get to go back to something comfortable. Mm -hmm. It's like reverse. It's, it's, it's all messed up. The whole system is, yeah. is screwy, you know? Anyway, that's my little soapbox speech on that no, whole No, but what, I mean, what's, what's, what's humble about 
Because I think, I mean, that's the genesis of self-respect and of recovery mm -hmm. is humility. Yes. Right. So what's one hundred percent? What's humble about hundred thousand dollar treatment in Malibu? You're being rewarded. I'm being very cynical here because some people do need that and some people do get sober. It's about a third, I think, of the people that go through those treatment centers maintain their sobriety. I think that's a rough, is that right? What is it? Say about 33% of people that go through inpatients remain sober. That would be a high estimate in my What would you estimation. think it would be? I'd be more in the teens. Oh, somewhere. really? Yeah. Okay. All right. I, We're talking long-term sobriety? Yes. In the teens? Yeah. Yeah. So I wonder if I wonder if someone could do a study on like a place like Harbor Lights and a place like, you know, Promises and see what the differences are. Because I know well, you we know that, you know, the longer you turn yourself over, you give yourself over to treatment, the better your chances are. Yeah. And some of those programs, what is Delancey Street? You know, yeah. it's a two year program. You give yourself over to it. Like what's really interesting is that because of our, you know, I'm a fan of capitalism. I'll just say that to the world. I'm a fan of capitalism. But the problem with capitalism is it favors the narcissist. It favors mm -hmm. the, the person who can make the sociopathic business decision. Those are the people a lot of times with a lot of money. And so they end up going to treatment, high-end treatment. It's like high-end treatment filters for the people who have pathologically the least chance of making it. Do you, do you agree with that? I, I agree with that. Well, I mean, I think that a big part of of the decline of the individual is their their what well, is their retreat from society. You know, uh -huh. your life becomes a box. It becomes just a little, a few square blocks mm -hmm. in, in the final days of your of your using of your alcoholism. It's absolutely some disease of social isolation. And so, the more that person can not get individualized, highly individualized customized treatment and are stuck with the hoi polloi to sort it out i'm for that i'm for the social model of treatment yeah you know i i do think in those first 30 days inpatient's a pretty good idea because yeah. you just need someone to get safe stabilize you need to stabilize yeah but after, beyond that i i certainly believe in in a social model there's a great guy his first name is randy i can't remember his last name he opened up a place i think i want to say it's laconia uh, New Hampshire, uh -huh. and he has kind of built this little sober town for men, and I think women now too. But really? He started, yeah. It's kind of a trade school. Wow. You, you go there, and it's in New Hampshire that was just devastated because of opioids. Uh huh. And he opened up this treatment center, and you you can either become a carpenter, a sign maker, a landscape designer, something like that. And it's all centered in this this little enclave around this lake in New Hampshire. Uh -huh. And I was just so attracted to that idea of kind of a working man's program to wake up, understand it's blue collar. And I think that there's something very natural and very, like I said, humbling, but also a, a great sense of pride in in learning a trade. Yeah. And uh, and again, like limiting the labor pool uh, yeah. for people in 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 and becoming specialized in your skill. And all the while, getting some programming, sitting down with um, with your fellows in recovery sure. and living with them as well. So check him out. I had this idea for a, a movie script where there would be this really narcissistic guy who's been to just, you know, a, for those of you who don't know, most people, the, the, the wealthy narcissistic types, they go to treatment like five, six, seven, eight times, and many of them don't ever get well. This would be a story about a guy who's going through one treatment center after another, and finally, he goes to this really exclusive one and he's on this little plane and the plane crashes uh, on the shore of an island and he gets out and he's kind of disheveled and he has to kind of survive on this island and that's the actual treatment he has to like okay you know he, he doesn't sure. know that of course and nobody really knows that he has to kind of deal he has to detox you know on his own yeah you know in the cold i like and, it you know <laughs> what, would you, what would you call that uh at a sober island i have sober no idea island. no i would give it away I, I don't know what i'd call it i'd call it you know i have no idea how to humble a narcissist so joe regan recovery detective i want to thank you deeply for coming on uh, i love the stories i think they're fascinating I think you see every side of these things in a way that I've never heard before. Mm. And I've heard, I thought I heard it all. And then I had this interview today. I really appreciate your points of view about the industry that are based on what you've really got your hands around. You've not just got a bunch of passionate ideas. Like it's based on really grounded research and material and you're, cause you're a detective, you figure things out. So right. I really appreciate it. Is there a website or a, there is for you? What is it? Sure. It's, ashburypi.com a-s-h-b-u-r-y p 
ASPI.com. I'm All in the right. Haight-Ashbury District of San Francisco. Okay. That's where we started. Um, I also specialize in elder abuse investigations. So when it comes to either diminished capacity of an elder, financial abuse, financial crimes. That comes from a case out of San Francisco that I call the wrong Wong. We can talk about that next time. Okay, the wrong Uh, Wong. But you can work your whole life, buy property in San Francisco. You can be taken in by someone and it it can leave you inside of two or three weeks. And that's what I witnessed. It got me really, really upset. Who was there for this guy? Right. Right? I mean, there there were red flags everywhere, huge transfers of money, but no one seemed to prevent it. So elder abuse, and then uh, there's the recovery work. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, Ben. Thank you for listening. As always, pertinent information stemming from this podcast, including links and other resources, are available in the episode notes. Should you have any questions, feedback, or wish to be a guest on my podcast, I can be reached at benjaminrusick at gmail.com. That's B-E-N-J-A-M-I-N-R-U-S-S-A-C-K at gmail.com. You can also reach me by going to my website at benjaminrusick.com. I also encourage you to subscribe. Thanks again, and remember, if your plate is full, sometimes you need to scrape a few things off to the side, and sometimes you just need a bigger plate.